Well, good morning. Today is uh, January 21st of 2024. Um, this is Lesson 10 in a series on pursuing contentment called Learning Contentment for the fourth installment. And what I'd, what I'd like to do today is resume where we left off with uh, Wilkinson's five different charges that he has for pursuing contentment. We got through four of them, but I think the fifth one is, is worthwhile. And he, he has this, the fifth uh, instruction he offers is, above all, he labors to make God his portion. So uh, there's two things, or maybe three, uh, that are worth, I think, noting that he, even though this is in position five, he describes it as being highly important. It's above all. So after you've done these other things, which are necessary, you really need to make sure that you're doing this. And secondly, he emphasizes the efforts involved in being content, that it's not a passive endeavor, but an active endeavor. He describes it as laboring. So above all, he labors, which is Similar to point number one, when he describes it as the person makes it his business. So it's, I want to emphasize that these are not passive endeavors. You don't slip into contentment unawares. You achieve it through uh, labor, through the due use of means. So uh, just by way of refresher, uh, it's a very active virtue that we're pursuing here. But the larger point of what he makes is that thing that we're pursuing is to make God our portion. Now, that's not language we use very often today. People don't talk about God as their portion. And so we'll spend a few minutes just describing what is meant by this phrase is portion. And sometimes you might find in your Bible it's described as part, sometimes portion or sometimes part. It makes no difference for this class. But this idea of portion comes from us, uh, comes to us from the Old Testament, and it's very much related to inheritance. Now, we see when the tribes of Israel were uh, wandering around uh, in the wilderness, one of the promises given to them was that they would have this land of Canaan, and they were anticipating dwelling among their tribes, their respective tribes, and each tribe was to have an allotment, a set of tract of land. And this area of Canaan was described as their inheritance. It was a gift. God was giving it to them. Canaan would be their portion. It was going to be their land. And even as... Uh, which is an easy thing to to comprehend. But even as this land is being allotted, we find something interesting happening, and that is the um, the the meaning of your portion or your allotment was ex- being extended beyond just the physical tract of land. So your allotment was not relegated to a certain set of GPS coordinates, right? And we see this in the tribe of Levi. 
they were not allotted any land. They weren't, they weren't given a portion like the other tribes were. Uh, they, were they were being distinguished as, and having a special privilege that the Lord himself would be their allotment. And so early on we see this idea of portion extending beyond real estate. So we don't want to limit our understanding to what we mean by portion as, as just physical things. So let's take a look at a few verses here in Numbers eighteen twenty. Then the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land, nor shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the children of Israel. And this is not to be construed as a slight against this tribe. It's not like they were being gypped. They weren't being shortchanged because they didn't get the prime real estate. God says, I've got something better for you. It's me. I'm your inheritance. So portion is already taking on a broader meaning. It hadn't even got to the land, and portion already means more than just the land. It's part of your inheritance. And then we find uh, yet people thinking about portion and inheritance uh, in an even broader sense. When we get to Job, we we find that um, uh, Zophar has this description of inheritance, uh, and he he really just nails this uh, when it comes to describing uh, things that happened in the hereafter. So portion going from land to God himself, to even our future inheritance. And, and he writes, uh, he's describing what happens to the wicked here. Terrors come upon him. Total darkness is reserved for his treasures. An unfanned fire will consume him. It shall go ill with him who is left in his tent. The heavens will reveal his iniquity. The earth will rise up against him. The increase of his house will depart and his goods will flow away in the day of his wrath. This is the portion from God for a wicked man, the heritage appointed to him by God. And the, the point of this reference is to help us see that portion becomes something bigger than just material well-being, that God has allotted certain things for us for sustaining our life. It goes beyond that. No, we're not here to... Uh, Zophar is just used to show us that there's a broader understanding here. We're not going to spend any time with Zophar. So going back to Wilkinson, when he says, above all, the saints labor to make God your portion. So as we're thinking about pursuing contentment, how, how are we going to overtake it? How are we going to acquire it for ourselves? Well, if we're following Wilkinson's advice, we need to figure out how to make God our portion. That's, that's one of the tasks before us. So we're going to look at just a few examples of people in Scripture that were in a set of circumstances, and they saw the answer to that set of circumstances as seeing God as a portion. And so by way of analogy, we look at it and say, okay, well, we have circumstances. How might God be my portion in my circumstances today? So we're, we're going to look at a few of them. We'll see, we'll see what we find here. So uh, in Psalm 73... Asaph, uh, remember the scope of what's happening to Asaph. He's envious of the wicked. He sees the things that they have. He, they grow fat, that their life is a life of luxury and ease. And so when tempted with the idea of coveting what your neighbor has, which is what was happening, or while envying what's going on with other people around you, Asaph points to the Lord being his portion as a remedy. 
Who am I, who have I, and whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So the antidote to this discontented state is to recognize God being his portion. And I would say, uh, as we think back a few lessons about our disordered desires that we looked at in our states of discontent, we find that Asaph is recognizing these things. There's none on earth I desire beside you. Well, that wasn't true 15 minutes ago. 15 minutes ago, there was a lot he desired that wasn't God. But when he got his head straight and he was able to see what his portion was, not only the allotment that God had given him, but who God himself was, what God was pledging, and then what his inheritance was. You, you see, he says, look, I, I've, I've got a lot and I've got strength. I've got strength to settle my mind. That's a beautiful picture. You have strength to settle your mind. We're going to look at that as a theme uh, through today as well. So what do you have in life that can help you be content? Well, how about God's word? You have God's word. You have the richness of God's word available to you to help you gain the understanding you need to evaluate the world around you. David sees this and he says, you are my portion, O Lord. I have said that I would keep your words. I entreated your favor with my whole heart. Be merciful to me me according to your words. Psalm 119, 56 through 58. Being sustained by recognizing that part of the portion that God has given us is his word. It's something that we have that we can fill our mind with to help settle us. Well, how about when things look bad on a national scale? How about when things really look like they're going south? Uh, Is there any episode in the history of Israel where things look like they they were, could they have been worse than what Jeremiah was describing and facing? The end of the nation, really. And there's some interesting... Uh, I, I had not appreciated this until I started thinking through this, this text. In Lamentations 3, uh, 22 through... I think we're just 22 and 23. I've got that written down wrong. Or through 24, sorry. He says, Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And that's that brings great comfort. It's rich wording. It's That's not the end of it either. He continues this comfort by describing the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. In the midst of national calamity or when the church is being assailed, great is your faithfulness is a good thing to say. It's also a good thing to say, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I hope in him. There's one more that... Uh, I, I find to be helpful and yet haunting uh, would be the way I would describe it. Um, so when you contemplate the impossible to describe goodness of God that's extended to you in your life and in the life to come, what words can you use to put that together? And Psalm 16 resonates with this theme. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance in my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. 
I assure you that David is not describing the surveying work of his fellow Israelite. You look at Psalm 16 and all the language involved describing the life to come, for instance, that his life will not be left in the grave. There's more to what he encounters than what he sees around him, but he he employs the language of this surveying and this inheritance through this real estate to describe God himself being given to his life. When God promises to be our portion, he's promising happiness and delight. That's what he wants to give us, happiness, goodness. He wants contentment in our minds and satisfaction with our days, both now and forever. It's not as if the contentment we receive today is materially different than the contentment we'll receive in heaven. The same source of satisfaction exists in both. So when he says that he wants us to be content and happy and satisfied and fulfilled, he's pointing to not only the life to come, but the life now. So the, the question that comes to our mind when we think about filling ourselves with this portion is, is God enough? If the, is the portion that you are trying to achieve or acquire, is God enough of a portion to fill your bowl? Or is he not? Don't be distracted by the circumstances of life from what your portion is. That's, the problem is you guys are all visually impaired. Well, I mean, I am quite visually impaired. You guys are really visually impaired, really visually impaired. Why? You see too much of the circumstances and too little of the portion. I mean, isn't that the plight of all of us? It's easy to be distracted by what we see and internally how we assess what we see and not see what's filling the bowl. God is our portion. That's the promise that he's given to us. Go back and read Psalm 16 with fresh eyes to decide how great the portion is and what kind of boundaries that it crosses into the different segments of our life to get this perspective of happiness and satisfaction. I think David nails it in describing how wonderful a portion God is for his life. So today is going to be miscellaneous. We've got a lot of smaller topics to address. So above all, labor to make God your portion. That's number one today. Any comments or questions about that? The language you use reminded me of Psalm 23, that my cup overflows. That's in the context of being at a table with my enemies. Um, right. And the distress that that must be, but my cup overflows. Uh, you anoint my head with oil and then closes with surely, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. I yeah. dwell in this house forever. It's, it's, it, goodness and mercy are in pursuit. Mm. Yeah, that's right. That's good. This note, I'm really struck by the concept of laboring for this, of being very active and just a constant, like you don't arrive, you don't just, it doesn't just get put on you. Like 
this will happen. Yesterday, I got to meet the Incredible Hulk, Lou Frigno. Cool. Who was mm-hmm. back in the day? That's why he was the, like ripped. And the concept of if he had just sat around, like one day I will be ripped. <laughs> right, and, the, and just like waited and waited and waited, and he's being patient, but then he became ripped. No, you know, so all the work that that goes into laboring after getting to that place that he was to compare that same thing to this to labor day in and day out to go to the gym every day laboring for to make God your God already is your portion but you're laboring to understand that you're laboring for contentment you're very active in pursuing it is a it's a it's a real important mind shift I think it is and and that's partly why this class is the first installment of applied meditation. It doesn't happen passively. It happens through an active engagement of the mind. And you've, you've got to work at these things. You've got to think about these things, which is interesting because that's the very next topic. So it's good. Any other comments? All right. Now I'm going to do something that is ill-advised, uh, but... We're going to do it anyway. Be bold. Uh, Wilkinson gave us five points. We're going with six. Number six, he employs the Sabbath to aid in the pursuit of contentment. Now, hearing no objection from Wilkinson or everybody else, we're going to keep it. That's what we're going to do. When we, in our last lesson, we spend time thinking about the creation mandate, the idea of being married, having children, raising them, finding vocation and calling, that these were all positive things God gives us to explore and understand the world, which then became the means by which we would understand God himself. I, found, I, I find that to be liberating, the, the idea that I can be employed in these endeavors and they are all means for me to acquire contentment. These are how I can busy my hands and busy my mind to acquire contentment. It's not happening in a vacuum somewhere. But one of the elements of the creation mandate we didn't spend any time on was how does the Sabbath, which is the last part of the list of things in the mandate, how does the Sabbath help us in contentment? is a design to help us in contentment. I think one of the greatest gifts of the Sabbath is to help us with the idea of contentment. And so um, the end of the week and all things. Why do we have a Sabbath? Well, let's not be confused like the Pharisees were. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. There's something valuable in the Sabbath that God saw when he designed it to give to us. And if you go back to the rest of the things in the creation mandate, you can see that God designed us to be in families, to have callings, to raise children. He designed us for these purposes. Well, he also designed the Sabbath because that's what this frame this constitution that's what this created object needs it needs these other things it needs a world to explore it also needs an avenue for rest 
And so the Sabbath was given to us while things were all good. We go back to Genesis 2 and find it. And But as the children of Israel were exiting the, uh, the wilderness and they were, they were given the law and the commandments, the Ten Commandments, the, well, the Sabbath, the practice of the Sabbath was being codified in the Ten Commandments. And those commands are given to us in two different places. They were given twice. And this command is, it differs from the other commands in that uh, attached to it is a rationale, why, why we should do these things. So it, it's, the command is not keep the Sabbath. That's not the command. The command doesn't start that way. Keeping the Sabbath is important, but understanding why we keep the Sabbath appears to be important because that's actually part of the command itself. So, so it's given to us twice. We're going we're gonna to look at both of them, and then we're going to look at two different ideas that are being emphasized there and hopefully see how they relate to this idea of contentment. So in Exodus 20... 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter, nor your male servant nor your female servant, nor your cattle nor the stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So that's the Exodus reading. And then Deuteronomy in chapter, it's Exodus 20. In Deuteronomy 5, we see it again. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your cattle, nor your stranger who is within the gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out there from a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. So, in these two accounts, we see two different rationales being applied for how we should, or why we should keep the Sabbath. The Exodus account uses language straight out of Genesis 2, and and in essence saying, God worked six days and then rested. You do the same thing in your callings. So being very positive, fulfill your callings, do these things. But this seventh day is a different day. I want you to rest. I rested. I I was working and I rested. I I designed things so that you should work and you should rest. That's, That's pretty simple and it's pretty straightforward. But the Deuteronomy passage includes this same emphasis of working six days, but there's a special injunction for us to remember that, dude, you were slaves in Egypt. So you need, you need your rest, and you didn't have any while you were a slave. So you need to remember the Sabbath day because you were once slaves. So how does the Sabbath day uh, relate to the idea of contentment? Well, in the first way it does is, I think, by we discover God in a different way than we do through our callings. So when we're busy in our callings, uh, we're investigating the world, investigating ourselves, investigating the people surrounding our lives. We're learning about the world, learning about human 
kind. We learn about God's word. We're taking this all in, but, but we're finite beings. We have limitations. And even when we were in an unfallen state, we're not limitless. We need time to stop from the activities, and then we need to turn and put our special focus on that relationship we have with God so that we have a way to pull it all together and understand who we are and who God is so that we can properly glorify and enjoy him. There's a way in which we glorify God and enjoy him during the week, fulfilling these callings, but there's a different way when we're putting it all together to make sense of it on the Sabbath day. We have an opportunity on the Sabbath to be free to process what's happened during the week. And he thought it was important for us to have a day dedicated to think about him prior to having all the headwinds of sin and fallenness around us. So Adam and Eve and their children and all their posterity, this is we looked at in this section on the callings, how they could have lived for a long time. Who knows how long it all would have lasted, how many generations? I have no idea. But God designed things so that they would have had a perpetual Sabbath and would have been delighted in that Sabbath, even though they didn't have the headwinds. There wasn't the sweat of the brow. There wasn't the thorn. There wasn't the thistle. It was all good, and they would have found that the Sabbath would have been a delight for them. And even God, who is limitless, he doesn't need a break. He didn't need six days to create things, but he did it in six days And at the end, what does he do? He takes time out to contemplate himself and all of his works. Why? Because it's glorious to do so. And he gives that as an example to us. I'm satisfied in what I've done over the span of six days, and I admire the wisdom, the beauty, the righteousness, the glory of it all. And God says, I want that for you. I want you to have that same satisfaction of admiring me and the wisdom and the goodness of what I've done, what I am doing in the world around you. The Sabbath is designed to help bring you happiness and delight and rest and satisfaction. So let's look at, in particular, this idea uh, of rest. And so we see in both sets of commandments, there's six days, we're busy, work, 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 do the things of your calling, however mundane they might appear at face value. Don't be distracted. Don't be visually impaired by looking at the face value of what you're doing and say it's unimportant. It is important. But we do six days of labor, not just vocational labor, and one of rest. One of the reasons why this rest is important is not just because our bodies need a break. I don't know how much of a break Adam would have needed. I don't know that he would have been so tired at the end of the week that I've just got to have a break from all this. He wasn't limitless, so I'm not saying it wouldn't have been necessary to have some sort of break. But I don't think that's the point. What the point God is saying is I want you to imagine a life of rest with me. So the Sabbath is given to us as a picture of rest. It's a picture of time spent here and then time spent here. There is a time for us to be actively engaged in our callings, 
And however enjoyable or even unpleasant any of those days may be, that's not the reason. That's not the end for which we were created. So we have the end of the week and the end of all things. There's two different ends in mind. One is a temporal terminus and one is a telos. Now that alliteration just popped into my head. So. <laughs> but that's the way to think about this, is there's a temporal terminus and a telos to it all. God himself is the great end. He's the purpose of all of it. We're made for more than just labor and exploration. We're made for communion. We're made to dwell with him. Even with Adam and Eve, I, it doesn't, it's not clear to me that in an unfallen state, the world as it, ex, it has existed then would have continued indefinitely. We don't know. But there's nothing that required it to be so. Um, but we do know, at some point, all our endeavors will end. The end of all things will come. And then we will have an eternal Sabbath. So does the Sabbath excite you? Well, if it doesn't, then ask yourself. If you can't get excited about the Sabbaths we enjoy today, which are both real and a type, what is it you think you're going to appreciate about being in heaven? What's the benefit? Uh, the, The absence of labor, of toil, a vocation and calling alone is an insufficient justification for you to spend eternity in heaven. I don't think the Bible paints a picture that idleness is the key to heaven. Glorifying God and enjoying him is. Those are all active things, just like we looked at. Above all, he endeavors to make God his portion. That's the goal we have here. That's why we can't be visually impaired by all the things of this world. These things are not the end. The end is God himself. And right now, the world is the mechanism by which he gives us to see all that he's doing. One more item on this, and that is this idea of rest being both a literal rest and a spiritual rest, it's also a typological rest. God's people are different than the wicked. The wicked, they don't have any rest. One of the reasons why you might consider making the Sabbath a bigger part of your spiritual life is so that it can distinguish you from the wicked. Distinguish you from the rest of the world. They may have rest in this life in some meaningful in, in some meaningful way. I mean, after all, Asaph was looking around and he saw all these people and they did not appear to be troubled. They appeared to have rest. I'm not, I'm not saying they don't have any rest at all. They may have a portion. They may have land. They may have this. They may have stuff. They may even be happy to some extent. But their portion is not God, nor do they have eternal life. And hell is objectively tumultuous. Hell is never depicted 
as serene. It's objectively tumultuous. In hell, there is active torment of body and soul. Active torment of body and soul. There is no rest there, nor will they ever be. And this is put a plug in for Daniel Howe's book, Worship, Feasting, Rest, Mercy, and the Christian Sabbath. It's out on the book table. Handy little book. Quick read. He does a very good job, but he has this. Here's the money quote. You don't want to be like these guys. Work without let up is worse than slavery. That's language coming from Deuteronomy passage. You were slaves. It's worse than slavery. It's the front porch of hell. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. And its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace for the wicked, from Isaiah 57. But rest, enjoying the blessing of God on our work, is a taste of heaven. You can pull heaven down to earth with the Sabbath. That's one way of doing it. So don't emulate the wicked. Let contentment and the Sabbath help distinguish you from the tumultuous world around us. All right, we'll take comments before we go on to the next section. I told you this is miscellaneous, so we'll... Any thoughts, objections? That's right. And, and that's a good training ground. But to think that perhaps one day um, I'll finally have enough space, I won't have to worry about ever selling anything. Uh, and I can just do things that bring glory to God forever. Right. Uh, I'm in. I'm in. That's right. Sign me up. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Cool. All right. So I want to return to Philippians 4. Uh, this was the passage we used at the opening of this series many moons ago. Um, chapter 4, verses 11 through t- 13. Paul says, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in what, whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This raises a question in my mind. Why does God change a man's estate? Why does he change his circumstances? Why does he change his condition? It seems more desirable for me to aim for normalized equilibrium. Why isn't that better for us? than a change or a difference in condition? It's a fair question. Paul's the one that brings it up. I've learned in whatever state I am, certainly implying I've been in many, you're going to be in many. But why are we in differing states at differing times? What's the point behind all that? If our state needs to change, I suggest we go from good to better. Right? How about from... Better to even better yet. And 
finally getting a totally awesome. Wouldn't that be a, a I'm all I'm all in for those state changes. But those aren't the state changes that were given. Well, fortunately, we're given some help here. In Richard Sibbs' work, The Art of Contentment, he, he takes his point straight on. He, he asks the question, what is the reason for this dispensation in God to thus rule his children to bring them to heaven by a variety of conditions? Well, three cheers that uh, he thought this through and could bring an answer to us. So uh, he has lots of distinctions and applications about how we should think about this. Um, and I'm only going to focus on um, two points that he makes because I, I think it gives us the better part of the picture. Uh, the first point is that um, their graces need to be tried or proven might be a way to think about it. Um, every grace that brings a Christian to heaven must be a tried grace. He must try his patience, his contentment, his humility. How would these graces be tried, but in a variety of estates and conditions? Well, it seems pretty obvious now, right? His explanation I find reasonable. Uh, but it still kind of irks a little bit, doesn't it, that our patience needs to be tried. Somehow we understand that. We have this irritable person in our life who just tries our patience. It's difficult for us. Well... We need to learn something. Something needs to be proven here. Something needs to be tried here. Well, when we're talking about contentment, I don't know that there is another way to bring about these differing states to prove the state of contentment until our condition and circumstances get altered. That's the way God intends for us to be aware of our, um, the grace that's in us. But it does ask the question is, oh, these are... States are to be tried or proven to whom? Who needs to discover the truth of the patience you have, for instance, is one of the things he mentioned. But who needs, who needs to discover the proven nature of your contentment? Well, um, it, if you think about it in one sense, there's, there's an observer involved, right? God needs to try his, God wants to try his patience or prove his patience or his contentment. Well, who's the observer? Who's watching? Who's the one that needs to learn this? Um, I don't think God needs validation. You know, I wonder how this is going to turn out, so I'll throw someone irritable his way and see how, man, nah, that didn't work out. He's got to wait. I mean, that's not the point, right? Well, and I don't think it's the other person, because oftentimes the people that irritate you aren't really aware that they're irritating you. So I don't know that they're the ones that need to learn how to be a better irritant. I mean, what would they be learning exactly? Well, it would appear we're the ones that need to be learning. We need to be, we're the observer in the circumstances of life as to how and why we are tried. Well, um, one of the things we have to learn is what has God accomplished in your life? You need to know this. You need to be aware of what he is actively bringing about in your life. And that's a difficult point to learn if things are never tried or proven. If you, it, it perhaps is only clear to you, you can better handle an irritant when you experience another irritant and realize you didn't respond the way you did before. Or in this case of contentment, when your circumstances have changed and you realize you're happy. 
even though things aren't outwardly the way you wanted them to be. Something is different and you're happy. Well, what explains that difference? The grace of God. He's doing something active in you. That work in you is bringing about real palpable change. How do you know that? It was just proven. And that's the whole point of it, is to help you see the way God is accomplishing all the things he promised to accomplish in your life. He is redeeming you bit by bit through a variety of circumstances and a variety of differences and conditions and states so that you can see what he's working at in you. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be visible otherwise. You wouldn't understand how much patience you have if you were never irritated with anyone. It's never, it's never an idle, bankable virtue. It's one that's only on display when it's tried. So then, what's the second point that Sibs brings? Um, the second point is from the moment that man was created in the garden in an unfallen way, our task has been to learn of God's wisdom, his power, his goodness, his righteousness, and his loving kindness. That was the case then, and it's still the case today. But because of the fall, these headwinds required that we experience different states or conditions. Why? Because of the deeply seated unbelief in our hearts about the goodness of God. Not only do we need to be proven in who we are, but God needs to be proven to us as to who he is. And Sibs makes this point here. He secondly, how would we experience the goodness of God but in a variety of estates? When we find the stable, certain, constant love of God in a variety of conditions, that however our conditions ebb and flow, yet notwithstanding, the love of God is always constant. And we never have so sure an experience of it as in the variety of conditions that befall us. You see, if it weren't for the fall, that God's verbal declaration to us that he was good and kind would be all that we would need. You'd believe it because it was true. And there's nothing to, to mar that understanding. But because of the fall and all of its disastrous downstream effects, we need to learn these truths experientially. We need to walk through them to be reminded that God is good to us on a regular basis. So on the one hand, God brings a variety of conditions to prove that he is actually doing something in our life. And on the other hand, he brings us through a variety of conditions so that we can understand his unfailing, unchanging nature of goodness. You have never been deprived of the goodness of God. That is covenant love that he's extended to you. But it's hard to believe. It's hard to believe when your estate changes. And that's the point, so that we can learn yet again in a fresh way that God is always good to his people. Questions or comments about uh, being abased and abounding? That's, 
I am saying that. I'm also saying so that we can understand ourselves better, too, that we are not the same person now that we were once before. And that's a, that's a wonderful truth. Can you imagine anything worse than God leaving you in the state you're in? Is this where you want to peak? Not me. No, I want to resemble Christ. And sometimes I wonder if there's been any work at all. But through a variety of circumstances, God reveals these truths to me. And I think, yeah, it doesn't feel like sometimes much ground has been covered. But there's a world of difference between that and no ground being covered. And so God has not abandoned me to myself. It does take work. You have to be humble enough to realize that God's wisdom is sufficient to design our circumstances to reveal both of these things to us. And that whatever, whatever story he's woven or created about someone else, yours is going to be different. But the same person's behind them both. That's a good point. Any other comments? Uh, we didn't cover all the material today that uh, I thought we would. And I... I don't know, um, we'll talk it over, uh, get input from session on what to do. I had planned on at least one more class, but it may need two more. Uh, and I'll be gone the first week of February, uh, so we might have a gap. Uh, but we'll pick up next week and try to finish this learning contentment side and then I hope to spend at least uh, a whole lesson on common objections to why we find it easy to be discontent or justify being discontent. So, let's pray.